So this morning we're going to be in Second Samuel chapter 21. You can turn there now. Uh, we are beginning to wrap up our study in the book of Second Samuel. Um, last week, uh, Ken preached on chapter 20, which is sort of the end of the chronological timeline of the story. And what we find in chapters 21 through 24 is really an epilogue. Um, if you uh, remember that uh, Samuel in your English Bibles, is there's, there's two, right? First and second Samuel. However, um, in the original Hebrew text, there was only one. It was just one unified book. And uh, as uh, Samuel ends with an epilogue, it actually began with a prologue. And so if you look at 1 Samuel chapter 1 through 7, you see that, uh, that prologue. And you learn about things about like the Ark of the Covenant and how it was lost in battle and things like that. But you also learn uh, why the book is named Samuel. Um, it's, it's named that because of, uh, of an individual who was born miraculously. Uh, a woman named Hannah was not able to have children. She cried out to God. God allowed this to happen. And so Samuel was born. And Samuel becomes this bridge between a period of time known as the judges and the period of time known as the time of the kings. Um, Samuel becomes the last judge of Israel. And, uh, and, and we read um, what, what the period of the judges sort of uh, looks like. When you look at the, the book of Judges, chapter 21, verse 25, the, the last verse of that, that book, it says this. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That's bad. Everyone does what is, what is right in their own eyes. Um, the, to say there was no king in Israel, it's not exactly accurate. God was supposed to be king. Uh, this was supposed to be a theocracy. Uh, God was supposed to be the one that the Israelites uh, submitted to and obeyed and followed. Um, however, uh, the period of the judges is just known for its division and its strife and um, all sorts of, of sin and rebellion against God. Everyone doing what was right in their own eyes. So uh, Samuel becomes the last judge in Israel because one day the leaders of Israel come to him and say, we want a human king. We want a king like all the other nations of the earth have. And God essentially told Samuel, well, they're not rejecting you, they're rejecting me. Uh, give them what they want, but warn them. And so he does. And Samuel tells the leaders of Israel, if you get a king, a king's gonna take from you. In fact, that's the operative word, Take. He's going to take your land, he's going to take your crops, he's going to take your produce, he's going to take uh, your servants, he's going to take your sons, he's going to take your daughters, he's going to take and take and take. That's what a king will do. And the leaders of Israel said, we don't care, we want a king. And so uh, Samuel anoints Saul. Later on, he anoints David. But see, that's where the chronological timeline of Samuel begins, the prologue ends, the timeline begins, and we saw the rise and fall of Saul. Uh, then the rise and fall of David in the, the first uh, 12 chapters of, of 2 Samuel. And then we saw the rise and fall of Absalom. And now we receive the return of, of King David. Uh, but now uh, the, the chronological portion of Samuel's ended. We're getting into the epilogue uh, here. And, and what the epilogue essentially is, is there's events from David's life that were taken out of the, the timeline and just sort of placed at the end. And, and so they're sort of disconnected from history a little bit. We don't know uh, the events of chapter 21 that we're gonna look at. We don't know when in David's life they happened, except they must have happened somewhere after uh, maybe chapter nine or so um, of, of 2 Samuel, but we don't know, all right? Um, and so uh, the, the other thing to, to note about this, this epilogue here, um, well, let me, let me say this. Uh, the, the question of, of judges, everyone doing what is right in their own, line, uh, own uh, eyes, um, is that solved by the kings, right? 
uh, this period of kings where, where uh, Saul is anointed and then David, and that's, is that Saul by the kings? And, and the reality is, is it's not. Uh, Saul did what was right in his own eyes. Uh, David, even though he was a man after God's own heart, did what was right in his own eyes. Absalom did what was right in his own eyes. And, and not just kings, we see people like Joab and Shimei and all these other people, but it hasn't changed things. Human kings haven't brought about the change that existed in the book of Judges. And so we've seen this theme throughout the, our, our study is that we need a better king. We need a better king. Um, and so um, the epilogue that, that we're talking about here, uh, it's, it's another chiasm, if you guys remember that. We've seen a, this a lot. This is a literary tool that the author of Samuel uses throughout the book. And it's a way of um, organizing different elements in such a, a way that they reflect back on one another. So the first element uh, reflects the last element, and the second element reflects the second to last element. And then whatever's in the middle of this chiasm, um, that's the thing that's being highlighted. We'll get there in a couple of weeks, but I want to point out this, that chapter 21 and chapter 24 um, are, are, are reflecting on each other. In chapter 21, we're going to see there's a natural disaster that takes place as a result of God's wrath because of the sin of a king. Chapter 24 is another natural disaster that takes place because of the wrath of God because of the sin of a king. And both of those chapters end with that being, uh, with the, the wrath of God being assuaged through a sacrifice. Chapter 21 ends in human sacrifice. So that's what we're, we're about to dive into. Um, I'm going to read this along with you, chapters 21 through 1 through 14. This is kind of lengthy, um, but here's what I'd like you to do. I'd like you to pay attention to your emotions as you read this. What feelings does this passage evoke in you as we walk through this? Pay attention to that. Okay, here we go. Now, there was a famine in the days of David for three years, year after year. And David sought the face of the Lord, and the Lord said, There is blood guilt on Saul and on his house, because he put the Gibeonites to death. So the king called the Gibeonites and spoke to them. Now the Gibeonites were not of the people of Israel, but of the remnant of the Amorites. Although the people of Israel had sworn to spare them, Saul had sought to strike them down in his zeal for the people of Israel and Judah. And David said to the Gibeonites, What shall I do for you? And how shall I make atonement that you may bless the heritage of the Lord? The Gibeonites said to him, It is not a matter of silver or gold between us and Saul or his house, neither is it for us to put any man to death in Israel. And he said, What do you say that I shall do for you? They said to the king, The man who consumed us and planned to destroy us so that we should have no place in all the territory of Israel, let seven of his sons be given to us, so that we may hang them before the Lord of God, before the Lord at Gibeah of Saul, the chosen of the Lord. And the king said, I will give them. But the king spared Mephibosheth, the son of Saul's son Jonathan, because of the oath of the Lord that was between them, between David and Jonathan, the son of Saul. The king took the two sons of Rizpah, the daughter of Ai, whom she bore to Saul, Ormoni and Mephibosheth, and the five sons of Merib, the daughter of Saul, whom she bore to Adriel, the son of Barzillai, the Maholothite, and he gave them into the hands of the Gibeonites, and they hanged them on the mountain before the Lord, and the seven of them perished together. They were put to death in the first days of harvest at the beginning of barley harvest. Then Rizpah, the daughter of Ai, took sackcloth and spread it for herself on the rock from the beginning of harvest until rain fell upon them from the heavens. And she did not allow the birds of the air to come upon them by day or the beasts of the field by night. When David was told that Rizpah, the daughter of Ai, the concubine of Saul, had done, David went and took the bones of Saul and the bones of his son Jonathan from the men of Jabesh-Gilead who he had stolen 
them from the public square of Beth Shan, uh, where the Philistines had hanged them. And on the day, the Philistines killed Saul and Gilboa. And he brought up from there the bones of Saul and the bones of his son Jonathan, and they gathered the bones of those who were hanged, and they buried the bones of Saul and his son Jonathan in the land of Benjamin and Zela in the tomb of Kish's father. And they did all that the king commanded, and after that, God responded to the plea for the land. Okay, so um, this event happened in David's life, but we don't know exactly when. More than likely, it didn't happen towards the end. So sort of disjointed from the, 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 the timeline, and it's set aside, and we're meant to, to look at it. Uh, how does it make you feel? Do you read this passage and say, this is good? Do you read this passage and get a sense of satisfaction that things are playing out the right way? Do you read this, this and see, well, there's tons of wisdom in here to be learned? And do, do you look at this and, and do you feel positive feelings about the things that are happening in this story? Anybody? Let me ask you this. Uh, if a friend came to you and uh, they, they'd just gone through a tragedy, they just lost a, a son or a daughter in a, in, a, in a tragic event, and they came to you and they said, I'm having a hard time believing that God is good. This, this God you say that you believe in, I'm having a hard time believing that, that that God is good. Would you say, you know, I know God is good. Let me take you to Scripture. Let me take you to 2 Samuel 21, 1 through 14. Let me show you that God is good. Is this where you take him? Is God good in this passage? So here's the deal. In the, if you were just to look at this passage in and of itself, just on its own. It doesn't point towards goodness. However, we're not supposed to look at it that way. We're supposed to look in scripture, at Scripture in the context of all Scripture. We're supposed to see this in the context of all of Samuel, but also in the storyline of all of the Bible. All right? And as you begin to pull on the threads of this story, you begin to get to the goodness of God. And this is what we're gonna do this morning. Um, we are going to get to the goodness of God here. Uh, verse 1, let's dive in. Now there was a famine in the days of David for three years, year after year. And David sought the face of the Lord, and the Lord said, There is blood guilt on Saul and on his house because he put the Gibeonites to death. Uh, so um, the, 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 sort of the, the story begins that we see uh, there's a famine. There's a, there's a natural disaster that's happening here. And we need to make clear that the natural disaster is a result of God's anger towards Israel. This is his wrath demonstrated through a natural disaster. Okay. Now, um, this book or this particular passage has been used um, as, as a proof text for some people in regards to uh, how we should deal with reparations specifically for the sin of slavery in our country. Okay. It's been used as a proof text to say this is how we should, we should handle this. And I want to argue that this is not a proof text for anything. Okay. This, is, this is not a prescription for anything. This is a description of something that's not good. It's, it's passages like this that describe an event and a, and a time and a thing that was, was very dark, and it's through this sort of negative thing that we're meant to see something positive. This is describing something that, that was, but it's pointing towards, towards something that should be. Remember, the theme of, of Samuel is we need a better king, right? This is not a prescription to be followed. 
But here we see uh, there's a famine, and it is a famine that is the result of God's wrath, his anger towards his people because of what Saul has done, the blood guilt of Saul. So, so David goes to God. He, he says there's, there's, there, there's a famine that's going on because uh, there's a drought. Drought means no water. Water means no crops. Crops means no food. Food means famine. There's a famine. Um, what's going on, God? And God says, well, it's because of the blood guilt of Saul. What did Saul do? Um, before moving on to the, the next verse, the, 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 the phrase or the, the passage is, ends with these words God responded to the plea for the land. Um, this indicates that um, there were people at this moment that are crying out to God. All right? As David is going to God, uh, there are people who are asking God, crying out to God for, for deliverance, and God's going to bring that about. And we see that, that theme throughout Scripture. Think about uh, the Exodus, right, where um, uh, God's uh, people, they're uh, slaves in Egypt, and because of their slavery, they're calling out to God for deliverance, and so God sends them a deliverer. He sends them a Savior. He sends them Moses, and, and through uh, what, what Moses does in that interaction with Pharaoh, there's ten plagues. The last plague is the plague of the firstborn son, an innocent lamb, slaughtered blood put over doorposts, Houses that have the blood of the innocent lamb on their doorposts, those houses are passed over. However, the houses that don't, the angel of the Lord comes and takes the firstborn son, right? There's the themes that we're seeing here, we've seen before. So these people are crying out for deliverance. At the end of this passage, we see God is going to show up. But I want to point this out and make sure that you're clear that, that, that this natural disaster is God's wrath. It's from God. And the salvation is from God. Let's come but, but why is, uh, is, is Saul got blood guilt on his hands? So, uh, chapter two, or I'm sorry, not chapter two, verse two. So the king called the Gibeonites and spoke to them. Now the Gibeonites were not of the people of Israel, but of the remnant of the Amorites. Although the people of Israel had sworn to spare them, Saul had sought to strike them down in his zeal for the people of Israel and Judah. So as we begin to pull on this thread of what's in the story, at first it's, it leads us back to Joshua chapter nine. Um, perhaps hundred years, hundreds of years before this event that we're reading about now, uh, the children of Israel were entering in the promised land. And God told them to drive out all the inhabitants that were there, Canaanites specifically. And Canaanites had different uh, uh, sects or groups. Some were called Amorites, and a sect of the Amorites were called Gibeonites. That's this particular people group we're talking about here. But these people realized that God is on the side of these Israelites, and he's driving out their people. And so in order to stay, they decide that they're going to deceive. And so they send a delegation to the leaders of the Israelites pretending to be from a far-off country, saying, we don't live anywhere uh, near here, but we've heard about you guys. Just want to make a treaty with you to, to make sure we're, we're, we're okay and we don't go to war with one another. The Israelite leaders don't talk to God. They don't ask God about it. They just say, okay, and they make an agreement with these, this tribe of Gibeonites. The problem is, though, they sealed the agreement with the name of God. They put God's name on it. Joshua 9 18 through 20 says this, uh, but the people of Israel did not attack them because the leaders of the congregation had swore to them by the Lord, the God of Israel. Swore to them by the Lord, the God of Israel. They're, they seal this treaty with the name of God on it. Then all the congregation murmured against the leaders, but all the leaders said to all the congregation, we have sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel, and now we may not touch them. This we will do to them, let them live, lest wrath be upon us because of the oath that we swore to them. We shouldn't have made agreement with them. 
We didn't ask God about it, but we went ahead and did it anyway, and we put God's stamp of approval on it, but because God's name's on it now, we are liable if we break this treaty. It'll be God's wrath that's upon us if we do. And that's exactly what happens. When Saul becomes king, for the zeal of the tribes of Judah and Israel, specifically tribes of, of Judah and Benjamin, because the Gibeonites lived in between those two areas, um, he doesn't do this for the zeal of the Lord, Saul was not zealous for the Lord. Saul was zealous for the approval of people. And so to win their approval, he goes about destroying the Gibeonites. He's attempting to wipe them from the face of the earth. And I want to be clear about this. We don't know how many Gibeonites he killed, but all, all, all answers point to many, many, many more than seven. He kills a lot of Gibeonites in order to please the tribes of Judah and Benjamin who were sharing resources and land and territory with these people that they didn't want to be there. And so God's anger is kindled. Now, here's, the, here's some things we don't know. Why didn't God handle this while Saul was alive? We don't know. For some reason, this is, this is now David's mess. Uh, Saul dies, and he, he's, he's not facing the consequences of his own actions. Other people are facing it. We don't know why this is happening in the time that it is, okay? Um, verse three, and David said to the Gibeonites, what shall I do for you, and how shall I make atonement that you may bless the heritage of the Lord? So David, um, he seeks the face of God. He, uh, he asks, why is there a famine? Uh, God says, it's because of the blood guilt of Saul. He, he talks to the Gibeonites, what did Saul do to you? And, and the Gibeonites say, uh, he's, he's about to give the answer here, but, but, um, but David says, how can I make atonement? The Hebrew word is kafar. How do I make atonement? How do I reconcile? How do I make this right? How do I, how do we cover this? A big theological word is propitiate. How do we make this situation right so that you're okay and God removes this famine from us? Um, David does understand one thing, that um, it's those who are offended who get to decide the cost of reconciliation. David doesn't get to say, uh, I'm just going to give you this territory or I'm going to you know, give you this amount of gold or I'm going to whatever. Like, David doesn't get to decide, to decide the cost of reconciliation. What can I do? Verse four, the Gibeonites said to him, it's not a matter of silver or gold between us and Saul or his house, neither is it for us to put any man to death at Israel. And he said, what do you say that I shall do for you? They said to the king, the man who consumed us and planned to destroy us so that we should have no place in all the territory of Israel, let seven of his sons be given to us so that we may hang them before the Lord at Gibeah of Saul, the chosen of the Lord. So their response, we don't want money. It's not a mission of money. In fact, uh, we, don't, we don't go to war. We don't, we don't want to see uh, Israelite bloodshed. But, but here's the deal. Um, Saul, he didn't just take people's lives. He didn't just kill people like he prevented life. He killed bloodlines. There are people who should have families still living and breathing today that are wiped from the face of the earth. And so since he's only left a remnant of Gibeonites, we want to see only a remnant left of Saul. Give us seven of his sons. The words, the, the, the number seven is a number of completion. It's saying that's the satisfactory amount. That's the number of sons we need in order to, to complete this, to bring this to rest, and, and to, to make an end of this. 
We need seven. Now, one of the key things in Scripture is that oftentimes it is children who either reap the, the rewards of their parents' righteousness or uh, they, they reap the punishment of their parents' wickedness. And, uh, and, and one of the things that we're, we'll, we'll see, or you, you won't see, if you read uh, 1 Kings, you discover that um, all this stuff that hasn't been resolved in 2 Samuel, so for instance, um, David and his relationship with Joab, his general, who's killed a whole bunch of people, and he's never once confronted him, right? He's never dealt with Joab's sin and his disobedience. Uh, what, what David's gonna do on his deathbed is he's gonna tell his son Solomon, hey, you take care of Joab. Solomon has to clean up the mess that happened in his father's reign and rule. Oftentimes, there's this messes that are, that are left by the parents to the sons, but how does that jive with scripture when it comes to inherited sin? Um, Deuteronomy 24, 16 says this, fathers shall not be put to death because of their children, nor shall children be put to death because of their fathers. Each one shall be put to death for his own sin. Right, you see that? The descendants of Saul shouldn't be put to death for Saul's sin. But look what's gonna happen. Now in, uh, in our physical universe, we, we have laws, right? And um, uh, last weekend, I was with a group of people from, from our house church, and we were in uh, Red River Gorge in Kentucky, and we were, uh, we were doing a little bit of, of hiking. There's like over 100 um, like stone arches there, and uh, at every trailhead, we noticed there's a memorial for somebody who had gotten too close to the edge and fallen off and died. And, uh, and, and, and there's all these warning signs around everywhere, right? Um, the, the physical law of gravity is. It just is, okay? And, and you can say, I don't like it. It doesn't matter. Right? Uh, you could say to yourself, I would like to be able to float or to fly or to not fall off a ladder or whatever. But unless you have some sort of tool that is able to, to use laws of you know, friction and, and, and lift and drag and like all sorts of stuff in order to manipulate the, the law of gravity and to use the law of gravity, unless you have something like that, you can't fly. And it doesn't matter how much you want to. Okay? It doesn't matter if you like the law of gravity or not, it just is. Agreed? Now, if there's a physical laws, or physical laws, plural, that govern our universe, doesn't it stand to reason that we're spiritual beings, that there are spiritual laws that also govern our universe? And that there's a spiritual being, the spiritual being, who put laws into place to govern the way things are, and it doesn't really matter if you like them or not. So, for instance, Genesis 9-6. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. A law which says a human being has value. It has value because it's made in the image of God. And should that life be taken away, the one who took it has to forfeit his life. It's a law written in, and it doesn't matter if we like it. Another one. How about Exodus 20, verse 7? You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord would not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Why? God's name is holy. God's name has supreme value. 
Because God has supreme value, his name has supreme value. The good news of that is since he's made you in his image, that gives you and I value. But, but, but the thing is, is if we were to defile his name, we justly earn God's anger. And here what Saul has done, a treaty sealed by the holy name of God, he breaks and commits murder. The wrath of God is justly against him, but here's a sticky point. Saul's dead. Saul's dead. He can't pay. What does that mean with God's wrath? Is it just supposed to disappear? See, that's, that's another one of these, these laws, like there has to be payment. There has to be. Now, um, one of the things about gravity is that we may not like gravity at times, but we need it, right? We need it. Uh, you think what the, what the universe would be like without, without gravity. Um, we wouldn't have light in the sky. I mean, we wouldn't have a sun, we wouldn't have stars, right? Imagine the things like, when you start pulling this apart, with, if there wasn't gravity, no light. How about life? Life, much of, of, of our carbon-based life is dependent upon gravity, right? For us to, to be able to come together and, and procreate. But, but love itself, what happened if you lived in a world where you just bounced off people and just went skipping into space? We, we need gravity. Gravity is a good thing. The same thing is God's spiritual laws are a good thing, and we need them. And the reality is if you look at this passage of Scripture and you say there's something about this that isn't good, isn't, doesn't that point you to the reality that you know what good is and that maybe that good was planted there by a good God that wants you to see him? Well, verse 6, the second part, we look at David's response. The king said, I will give them. I will give them. David agrees that there has to be a point, a payment. But what is he doing? What is he doing? Well, he's essentially breaking the law of Deuteronomy 24, 16 by putting to the death uh, children of the father for their sins, for their father's sins. He's breaking the law of Deuteronomy 24, 16 to obey Genesis 9, 6 and Exodus 20, verse 7. Compromise. See, he's in a no-win scenario. This is a no-win scenario for him. One commentator writes this uh, about sin. Sin takes us much farther than we want to go. The sins of both Saul and David are like stones thrown in the middle of a pond. The initial plunge into the water makes a big splash, but the ripples move from the middle of the pond to the shore and then back to the middle in innumerable waves and many collisions. This is the nature of sin. One can never calculate its fallout. This is a no-win scenario. For more on a no-win scenario, see Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. I thought we just needed a little levity here. But this is a no-win scenario. He breaks one law in order to keep others. We're supposed to look at this and say, no. No. Verse 7, but the king spared Mephibosheth. The son of Saul's son, Jonathan, because of the oath of the Lord that was, um, that was between them, between David and Jonathan, the son of Saul. 
Now Saul was not a friend of David, but, but his son Jonathan and David, they were, they were best friends. They, uh, they, were the, they were very, very close, and they made a covenant relationship with, with one another. We see this in, in 1 Samuel 20, but, uh, but Jonathan knows his time is running out, that God has chosen David, but he promises, or he asked David to promise that his line would not perish, that he would protect his kids. And so at a certain point when David becomes king, he looks around and says, who from the family of jo- uh, Jonathan can I bless? Who can I show the loving kindness of God to? And he finds out about Mephibosheth, this, this, this young man who uh, he was, he was crippled at an early age because of an accident. And he's kind of destitute because of that. And David restores his father's property to him. And he brings him into his house. And he gives him a seat at his table. I mean, Mephibosheth is almost like an adopted beloved son for David. And so now here's this demand for uh, uh, an heir of Saul to pay a penalty. And David says, no, not Mephibosheth. In order to to keep his covenant with his promise to, to Jonathan, he's protecting this beloved son, Mephibosheth. Verses eight and nine. The king took the two sons of Rizpah, the daughter of Ai, whom she bore to Saul, Armonai and Mephibosheth, and the five sons of Merib, the daughter of Saul, whom she bore to Adriel, the son of Barzillai, the Maholathite. And he gave them into the hands of the Gibeonites, and they hanged them on the mountain before the Lord, and the seven of them perished together. They were put to death in the first days of harvest, at the beginning of barley harvest. What's the operative word here that we've seen over and over again? Took. What will the king do? He'll take. He took. Two sons here of Rizpah, uh, five sons of Mirab. He takes them. Now, um, uh, you might have in your uh, Bible translations, uh, you might see instead of Merib, you might see the, uh, McCall's name there. Um, Merib was, was originally going to be given to David in marriage after he killed Goliath. Saul changed his mind, gave her away to Adriel. Uh, they have five kids together. Um, it, it may be the reason why you have uh, McCall or Michael in, in your translation is because um, it's believed that uh, Mira may have died and McCall, Michael may have raised them, but Michael didn't have any kids of her own. We saw that earlier in 2 Samuel. Anyway, David took. David took. And uh, now we're going to see a mother's grief because of the, of the taking. Uh, I also want one more thing to point out. This is when harvest should have been because of the famine, there actually is no harvest. So instead of, of them uh, taking a, a scythe to a barley field, um, instead of you know, wheat being cut or, or grain being cut and harvested, um, human beings are being sacrificed. Verse 10, then Rizpah, the daughter, daughter of Ai, took sackcloth and spread it for herself on the rock from the beginning of harvest until rain fell upon them from the heavens. And she did not allow the birds of the air to come upon them by day or the beasts of the field by night. So here we have a mother who is caught between the needs of her people. On the one hand, that are suffering uh, from a famine, needs food, and yet the love of her sons, which she has had taken from her. And I think this is the part that we're really supposed to look at and, and see, man, this is not okay. This is hard. 
Like this is sorrow, this is suffering, this is, this is mourning. This is not the way things are supposed to be. We aren't supposed to like this or approve of this. We're supposed to see this. Now, uh, David, uh, the, the passage goes on and David, um, uh, not without empathy, he collects the bones of Saul and Jonathan um, and then he collects the bodies of these men and uh, he buries them. Um, but, uh, but, but here, uh, here we see Rizpah, she's, she's been standing guard over them. And, and it's because of this we actually notice that there's another law that's been broken. Um, and that is uh, that when somebody was hung, they were, their body was supposed to be taken down before sundown. Um, that obviously didn't happen. They stayed up. So there's another law that's being broken here. Um, then the last verse again, and after that, God responded to the plea for the land. Uh, so the, the bones are buried. It says, after the burial, then God responded to the land. How did he respond to the land? Rain. Okay. Uh, uh, the, the idea of, uh, uh, that we're supposed to see like rain falling on these dead bodies while they're still hanging up, I don't think uh, that's uh, the, the right way to see it, um, but I could be wrong. But God responds to the cry for deliverance. Right? Um, the people we're under a natural disaster because of the wrath of God. God brings this on, but then God is the one who delivers. What do we do with all this? What do we do with all this? You have a friend that comes to you. Is God good? You gonna take him to this passage? Is God good? Is God worth, is his goodness worth worshiping? You gonna find that here? You gonna lead them to this one? What do we do with this? See, when we begin to pull on the threads of this passage, we begin to see connections. And, and on a larger connection is, how does Samuel begin? It begins with a miraculous birth. A woman who can't have children has children. A miraculous birth of an individual who anoints the first kings. What do you see in the New Testament? A miraculous birth a virgin who couldn't have a child has a child who is the king of kings. In Samuel, we see this Davidic covenant, right, where God makes this promise that from your line, the king will come. And in the New Testament, that king is born. He comes. In Judges, we see there was no king, and everybody did what was right in their own eyes, right? But God was supposed to be king, but God was rejected, but then man is made king and man fails. So we need a better king. And, and who is it that's born on the opening pages of the New Testament if not a king who is both God and man? The king of kings. See, as we begin to pull on these threads, we get to see connections here. You know, in Samuel, David said to the Gibeonites, what shall I do for you? They said, it isn't for us to put a man to death in Israel. You know, in John chapter uh, 18, we actually see something very similar uh, where the religious leaders bring Jesus uh, to Pontius Pilate. He says, what do you want or what can I do for you? And they say, it's not lawful for us to put anyone to death. And he says, take him yourselves and crucify him. He hands them over. He hands them over. In Samuel, David recognized that it was those who were wronged who determined the cost of reconciliation. In the New Testament, we see that it's God who gets to determine the cost of reconciliation for our sin against him. He chose what the price was. In Samuel, David withholds Mephibosheth from the Gibeonites. 
He, he protects who is essentially a beloved son in order to preserve a covenant he made. But you see, in the New Testament, we see a God who hands over his beloved son in order to fulfill all the covenants that he made. And Samuel, David took these men. He took. Now, we don't know what their response was, but we see Jesus' response. And we see that God the Father didn't take Jesus, that Jesus went. That a part of this divine plan, the second person of the Trinity, came and took on flesh and was born into this world to live a holy, righteous, perfect life. And he never compromised a single law in in order to keep another one. Holy, righteous, perfect, goes to the cross in our place to make atonement, to make it right, to assuage what? Natural disasters? No, the wrath of God against us for our sin and rebellion against him. He goes to the cross and he makes atonement for that. He who knew no sin becomes sin so that we might know the righteousness of God. See, that's what Christ does for us. In 2 Samuel, or in Samuel, it, it took seven men to accomplish a limited form of deliverance. In the Gospels, it only takes Jesus to accomplish unlimited deliverance. In Samuel, his, this natural disaster brought upon the people by the sin of one king was redeemed only to find out three chapters later, we'll get that in, in chapter 24, that there's just more of the same. Natural disaster from the wrath of God because of the sin of the king that requires more sacrifice. And yet what Jesus did once and for all finishes it. Finishes it all. You see, here's the point. We, we need a better king. But we also need to be a better people. You think about that. Uh, Saul, he went ahead and tried to, to destroy a whole people from the face of the earth. But why didn't the tribes of Judah and Benjamin intervene to stop Why did they go along with it? Why did they like it? Um, Why did the Israelites many, many years before that make a treaty with a group of people they didn't ask God about? And how often do we do that? How often do we we go ahead and do something without inquiring of God, asking, asking God what we should do? We just go ahead and do something and then we just expect God to put his stamp of approval on it. See, not only do we need a better king, we need to be a better people. And Christ not only atones for our sin, he takes care of that for us, but he also sends his spirit to live in us, empowering us to be the better people. Now, we might look at all this and we might say, you know what, it's not fair. Right, that inherited thing, the inherited sin, like the Bible speaks to the fact that we have inherited guilt from our first father, Adam. And we would look at that and say, that's not fair. Notice David doesn't look at what he has to deal with because of Saul's sin and says, ah, it's not fair. Do you notice also in the chapter 24, the, the, the natural disaster that, that happens there is because of, of, of God's wrath kindled against Israel because of what David does. See, here's the reality. You and I, we're sinners. Is it because we inherited the sin? Yes. Is it because we commit the same sins as Adam? Yes. Yes. And if you would say, look at that, and I don't like that. I don't like that. Then also look at the cross and recognize what's been done for you there. That somebody else took your place. Do you see? 
you, you, you would look at, at, at what God has said about your sin and you would say, that's not fair. Look at the cross and tell me that's fair. It's not fair, but it's good because it's the plan of a good God who loves you so much he came to save you. It's good. See, I think one of the, the coolest things about all this, and may, this blows my mind and maybe it won't blow yours, whatever, but God is good. And the fact that you can get to the goodness of God through a passage like 2 Samuel 21, 1 through 14, is amazing. That if you come to, to scripture and it offends you and you wanna walk away from it, it's because you haven't done the work of actually looking at it. If you come to scripture and, and you don't like what it says and you, 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 think away, you think that it doesn't point to a good God, you're not really getting into it. When you start pulling on those strings, every single place goes to the cross. Every single place goes to Jesus. That's how good God is, that from a place like 2 Samuel 21, you get to the goodness of God. That's amazing. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your goodness. Uh, thank you for the, the depths of your love for us. Thank you for this story, which at first blush, at, at first glance, from a, from a superficial level, just seems so difficult and so uh, uncomfortable and messy, and yet this shows us uh, your heart. It shows us your plan. It shows us what you've done. We need a better king, and you've sent him, and Lord Jesus, you are that better king. You've done what no human being has ever been able to do, and you've reconciled us to God. God God was righteously angry towards us, but you stepped in front of that anger, you absorbed it, and now we get to have your righteousness. I pray that we would live out of the power of the Holy Spirit. We have a better king, help us be a better king, not on our own strength, but on yours, in the name of Jesus, amen.